0: A lot has been speculated over the idea of levels of consciousness. I've been largely unmoved by the idea. It seems to me that the great mystery is the existence of conscious experiences at all, of subjectivity in an objective universe. I'm continually astonished by the simple fact that it is like something to be in this moment, so what can be meant by having lower or higher levels of consciousness? Christoph Koch discusses essential nodes in The Quest for Consciousness. Koch writes, quote, Destruction of a specific chunk of brain matter may render the patient unable to experience some particular aspect of the world, without a generalized loss of any one sense. The British neuroscientist Samir Zeki at University College in London, England coined the term essential node to describe this damaged portion of the brain for that particular conscious attribute. For example, a region in the fusiform gyrus contains an essential node for the perception of color, A more anterior part of this gyrus includes an essential node for face perception, while part of the amygdala is needed for perceiving fearful facial expressions." I can at least imagine what it might be like to lose a portion of one of my senses, to not see color, or even not to recognize faces. Suppose a bat asked you what it is like to not have echolocation. The loss of an essential node would be kind of like not knowing what it is like to have echolocation. You might really have no sense at all of what has been lost. Nevertheless, you would not say that a person absent one or more essential nodes has a lower level of consciousness. You wouldn't say that about a blind person or a deaf person. It simply doesn't make any sense. The blind person is wholly conscious just as any other person is wholly conscious. In talking about levels of consciousness, I don't think we are thinking about drowsiness versus wide-eyed wakefulness either. There is something to the idea that is more fundamental than that. Consider the split brain. As I presented in episode 23, the left hemisphere is normally the only one that can understand and produce complex language. Koch writes, quote, The single most dramatic finding from these investigations is the ability to speak and to a lesser extent to comprehend language, is limited to one, the dominant hemisphere. In more than 9 out of 10 patients, it is the left cortical hemisphere that speaks communicates through writing, and deals with other aspects of language with ease. The right cortical hemisphere has only limited language comprehension and can't talk, although it can sing. When a split-brain patient talks, it is his or her dominant hemisphere that is in control. The non-dominant hemisphere is mute. It can still signal, however, by nodding the head or making meaningful signs with the fingers of the opposite hand." The split-brain patients clearly seem to possess two separate minds. When I think about my isolated right hemisphere, if I were to have such a procedure done, it seems possible that it would have a lower level of consciousness than what I am now possessed of. The left hemisphere, too, might exhibit a lower level of consciousness, it's just easier for me to conceptualize such a state in the absence of linguistic capacity. My general disposition, though, is to assume that each of the two minds is a complete consciousness in itself, and that the idea of a higher or lower level of consciousness does not apply. In order to explore this idea further and see if I can make any headway, I am going to use the present episode to chop the conscious system down to something very small. Let's see if there is some insight that can be gained. To start, let's get down to the basics. I have used the term element in previous podcasts. I apply this term in my work, and so do others, notably Giulio Tononi and his colleagues. For the sake of this discussion, I will limit the term to mean neuronal elements. In this context, an element refers to one neuron in a network, or perhaps a few neurons that work together as a small group. An element is meant to be the minimal neuronal unit which, together with any other elements, constitutes a system. The particular neurons that we are most interested in are those situated in the cerebral cortex. Even limiting our focus to the cortex leaves us with a large variety of neuronal types. These cells are not just thrown together, but they are arranged in a layered manner across the whole neocortex. When we refer to the six layers of the cortex, we are talking about the position of certain types of neurons at specific depths from the outer surface of the brain. These types of neurons were named a long time ago based on their morphology, before their functions were understood. The outermost layer is referred to as the molecular layer, and it contains dendrites from cells deeper down, but essentially no neuronal cell bodies. The second layer is called the external granule cell layer, because it contains neurons whose cell bodies are small and round. Third is the external pyramidal cell layer, so-called because the cell bodies are larger and triangular in shape. Fourth is the internal granule cell layer, fifth is the internal pyramidal cell layer, and the sixth layer, the deepest in the cortex, is the multiform layer, presumably because the cells there have a variety of morphologies. So the layering of cell types is based upon the position of the neuron's cell bodies. In fact, the dendrites spread out from there often extending far into the layers above, and the axons project far afield even to distant places in the brain and body. Some cortical neurons are described as projection neurons, meaning that their axons extend out of the local network and send their signals to other neurons in another region of cortex, in the thalamus, or in a subcortical structure. These projection neurons are excitatory, meaning that they act to promote action potentials in their target neurons. Other cortical neurons are interneurons. Their axons target nearby neurons and they are inhibitory, so they act to reduce the likelihood of their target neurons to fire action potentials. All of this is arranged in an orderly fashion, so as to do all of the work that the cortex does. In total, this is a very complex arrangement, with hierarchical order and topographical maps, The difficulty of distilling the fundamental NCC in such an arrangement is that it is highly evolved as a human contraption. It does a hell of a lot more than just to produce conscious experiences. Ultimately, a neuron is nothing more than a complex little machine. It is a specialized cell, but it is, after all, only a cell. It has some interesting capabilities, but they are all perfectly reducible to biochemistry and biophysics. Synapses on the neuron's dendrites contain molecular receptors which respond to appropriate neurotransmitters by allowing ions to flow across the cell membrane and change its voltage. This voltage change, referred to as the membrane potential, spreads along the dendrites toward the cell body. One or two such synapses are insufficient to result in the neuron firing an action potential. But if enough of these little depolarizations in the membrane potential occur within a brief window of time, a threshold will be reached at the axon initial segment and an action potential will occur. If this condition persists, the neuron might fire a train of action potentials. Different types of neurons act a bit differently, but all of it can be accounted for by the molecular biology of the cell. How many synapses are there on its dendrites? How many receptors are available at those synapses? And what type of receptors are they? How many sodium channels and potassium channels are present on the cell surface? What subtypes of channels? Where in the cell are they distributed? Etc., etc., etc. These features, and many more, will determine the propensity of the cell to fire action potentials, set the threshold, the refractory period that occurs between action potentials, and so on. Whatever the features of a given neuron, the cell is a machine that fires action potentials. When those action potentials arrive at their target, relatively quickly if the axons have a myelin sheath, relatively slowly if not, a molecular cascade occurs at the synapse, with the release of vesicles containing neurotransmitter, and the same kind of process occurs in the target cell. Each element is a little machine. Admittedly, it is a buzzing array of complex reactions and protein-protein interactions and membrane dynamics, so it is a really cool machine, but only a machine. And we have already understood that wiring up a few of these machines into a reflex arc or a motor output sequence does not produce conscious contents. There is something in the accumulation and specific arrangement of these machines into a super machine that produces the conscious state. There are any number of analogies to this idea of a machine composed of machines. A car is such a machine, because it contains such devices as headlights and an alternator and a transmission. The human body itself is a kind of machine, within which the different organ systems are smaller machines, within which tissues are massive collections of individual little cellular machines. Nevertheless, it seems to be the case that the human brain is arranged in a special way, at least when it is in an awake state or in a dreaming state, in a way that creates subjective experiences. I have gone to great lengths in previous episodes to explain this arrangement, and I have proposed after Tononi and Massimini that it has to do with integration and differentiation. So let's build a system of neuronal elements and consider the case. Let there be ten elements for the sake of discussion. Let's connect them up so that each element sends output to two or three of the others, so that each one can directly or indirectly influence all of the others and also the future state of itself. An element can influence itself because indirectly after a few other elements receive its signal, if they also fire action potentials, the message will in time come back and stimulate the original element. Each element has its own particular character, so element one might require two incoming stimuli to fall within a five millisecond window in order to reach its threshold. Maybe element 2 requires 4 stimuli to fall within a 7-millisecond window, and so on. This way, there is more than one pathway that a signal could pass through the network. Wouldn't you agree that we have just rigged up a small machine, composed of a number of smaller machines? The system we have built is just as real, exists just as much as its individual neurons do. Now let's install a couple of input devices. One that sends a strong stimulus to one or two of the elements in our little system, and another that sends a weaker stimulus to one or two other elements. And let's add a couple of outputs. Say element 5 sends an output to a device that turns on a dimmer switch for a light. And element 6 sends an output that makes a speaker chirp. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Now we have a little brain. How it behaves is an empirical question based entirely on how we set it up. We can run an experiment by playing around with our two stimulating devices, individually or together. The result is some amount of light turning on and off, and some quantity of chirping noises. The problem I see immediately is that the machine only works when we turn on a stimulus. If we wanted to model a thalamocortical network, its elements should have some baseline spontaneous activity. So let's give each of the 10 elements its own spontaneous tendency to fire. Now the output devices, the light will occasionally come on and the speaker will occasionally chirp, even without stimulation. Fine. Done. Is this machine conscious? The ten elements of our machine could be wired up to satisfy the need for irreducible cause-effect power. According to integrated information theory, it might be. And maybe IIT is right about that, but I am suspicious. Let me review the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, so we can think about how it would handle our little machine. According to the TICL, a single massive integrated system is made up of millions of elements across the thalamus and cerebral cortex. It is defined as having a non-zero amount of temporally integrated causality across all the elements. Temporally integrated causality is a term that I have given to the amount of causality one thalamocortical element has on another divided by the delay in that causality. So, a given amount of causality requiring a long period of time will yield a lower level of temporally integrated causality than the same amount of causality occurring in a short time frame. The system is composed of a huge number of neuronal elements, and all of them have some degree of temporally integrated causality on all of the others. The more distance and the more synaptic contacts that it takes to influence another neuron in the network, the lower the temporally integrated causality between one element and another will be. Some of the system's elements will be influencing one another to a higher degree, much higher than the integrated causality across the whole system. These elements will form a subsystem among themselves. The subsystems are groups of neuronal elements within the system that have a higher degree of temporally integrated causality than that of the larger system. Each subsystem is therefore an integrated entity within a larger integrated entity. From the point of view of the system, the dynamics of its subsystems produce conscious contents. According to the TICL, could the 10-element machine be conscious? Here is where a problem occurs to me. We establish that each neuron is itself a little machine. It has parts that work together, the dendrites, synapses, cell body, axon initial segment, axons. What difference does it make if we simply connect up ten of these into a bigger machine? The ten elements are just parts of a machine. Shit, why would it be conscious? I don't think it would be. If it were, then we would be living in a quite panpsychist world. Moreover, there would probably be thousands of individual conscious minds arising from, its workings, from the workings of a single human brain. Of course, this can't be ruled out. But let's revisit the characteristics of consciousness that we are seeking to explain. This is from the second episode of the podcast. I said, the essential characteristics of consciousness that I have described may include peculiarities of human consciousness. Are all of them necessary for consciousness per se? Let's review the features of human consciousness in brief. Human consciousness is a unified composition of contents. The contents are specific and meaningful, and they exist from a point of view. Human consciousness is continuous in time, it is limited and coherent. Okay? So I am suggesting that our 10-element machine does not produce consciousness. At the same time, I am arguing that the human thalamocortical system, with its millions of elements, does. Let me consider the characteristics in turn. 1. Human consciousness is unified. I think I have established that the 10-element machine is unified, just as a much bigger machine which exhibits integration across all of its elements is unified. 2. Human consciousness is a composition of contents. To me, this is not satisfied by the 10-element machine as described. The reason for this is that I do not really see much capacity to produce subsystems within such a small structure with this many interconnections, but maybe. 3. The contents of human consciousness are specific and meaningful from a point of view. According to the TICL, the point of view must be that of the whole 10-element system. The contents have to be specified by the arrangement of subsystems within the ten elements. There is not much room here for subsystems, but if we imagine one or two subsystems could occur within the ten elements, the meaning would be almost nothing. 4. Human consciousness is continuous in time. We actually experience this continuity. We see and feel things changing and appearing and disappearing. This has something to do with working memory, as I've discussed before. Our little 10-element machine doesn't have anything like this. And five, human consciousness is limited and coherent. This could be more or less satisfied by the 10-element machine. Narrowing in on the distinctions between the system producing a human mind and the little 10-element system, we can focus on two general points. The contents and the continuity. To begin with continuity, which seems like a simpler fix, it seems that we are going to need some feedback loops to keep certain signals going. I'm not an engineer. I do not know how many more elements or special devices it would take to augment the little system so that it had a little working memory. But just for the hell of it, let's say we need more elements, say a total of 50 elements, hooked up such that some of them are specialized for feeding back and maintaining certain activities in the system. This is a very rudimentary and hand-waving suggestion, but I don't think it matters that much for the sake of this discussion. Let's pretend that our 50-element system is integrated, that each of the elements has its own special characteristics and connections with some subset of the others, and so on. Let's call this little system 50. And of course, we still have two input devices and two outputs from the system. Alright, we can imagine that this is sufficient to put away the continuity problem. How about conscious contents? After all. What is consciousness without contents? I don't think this concept is even coherent. Thomas Nagel defined consciousness as it being like something to be. Consciousness without contents is being without something that it is like to be. That's what I mean by it being an incoherent concept. If our machine, now a little 50-element system called 50, is to be conscious, it has to be able to experience contents. In human consciousness, the contents are specific. And meaningful from a point of view. Could 50 experience specific and meaningful contents? According to the TICL, contents emerge from subsystemic activities, so the question here is, are there distinguishable subsystems possible within 50? In principle, such subsystems are possible, so let's allow that 50, with the characteristics I have laid out, is indeed conscious. In the manner of TICL, the 50 elements have some non-zero quantity of temporally integrated causality within which At any given time, there are one or more subsystems consisting of elements across which some higher degree of temporally integrated causality occurs. What would it be like to be 50? I have said that the contents of consciousness as they occur, emergent from the human brain, are specific and meaningful. How specific and meaningful are they to 50? Suppose a subsystem has arisen over 10 elements with a very high level of temporally integrated causality. Assuming that 50 accordingly experiences something, what meaning will that something have? Does it matter if there are other subsystems co-occurring against which to compare? I cannot say whether a machine like 50 would actually exhibit a conscious mind, but if so, then it is reasonable to allow that fruit flies with their thousands of neurons might be conscious too, and something can be said on their account with regard to levels of consciousness. And yet, as I have said, one is either conscious or not. So perhaps it isn't so much a distinction between low levels and high levels of consciousness which should be made, but a distinction between low and high levels of meaning. John Searle argued that conscious contents have meaning. He wrote in his book The Mystery of Consciousness, The important point is that the mechanism is defined entirely in terms of the manipulation of symbols. Computation so defined is a purely syntactical set of operations, in the sense that only features of the symbols that matter for the implementation of the program are the formal or syntactical features. But we know from our own experience that the mind has something more going on in it than the manipulation of formal symbols. Minds have contents. For example, when we are thinking in English, the English words going through our minds are not just uninterpreted formal symbols. Rather, we know what they mean. For us, the words have a meaning, or semantics. The mind could not be just a computer program, because the formal symbols of the computer program by themselves are not sufficient to guarantee the presence of the semantic content that occurs in actual minds." I propose that the thing which makes human consciousness rich and meaningful depends in large part on its size, its huge number of elements. Meaning is relational. The more relationships that can be understood, the richer the meaning. The human mind is capable of evaluating meanings, and meanings of meanings, and even third or fourth degree meanings. Think of all the dimensions of visual perception. Even ignoring all other cognitive and perceptual contents, we see spatial relations, size relations, relations of movement, contours, contrasts, perspective, colors, distance, surface textures, familiarity and novelty, and on and on. This is all highly evolved and specialized in the human being. Annika Harris explores the idea of a lower level of consciousness in her book, Conscious. She tries to imagine what that might be like in this passage. She writes, Imagine being a brain without any sense organs connected, floating in empty space or in a vast body of water. Then imagine your senses being connected one at a time. First, vision. The only content available to you is a subtle experience of sight. You can see light, perhaps, pulsating light, a varying brightness coming in and out. Try to apprehend this without including the concepts of memory or language, so that there's no sense of a self-thinking, whoa, it was just dark, but now it's light again. Instead, try to imagine a very simple flow of first experiences, light and dark alternating, then brighter light, dimmer light, pulsating light. Next, imagine light that takes on shapes, a circular light, a beam of light, light that extends far into the distance. Adding color, perhaps, a reddish light that transforms to orange, then yellow, then blue. Imagine feeling formless and weightless. You're free-floating in space with no thoughts or concepts, no words orange or red, just pure experience of those colors. Visualize the most basic experience imaginable." I don't know whether a system so reduced and limited as 50 could have a subjective existence, but the exercise I have gone through does suggest something important. Levels of meaning depend not only on the arrangement of elements, but also on the number of elements in the system. With so constrained a repertoire as 50, even the simplicity of Harris's visualization is rich by comparison. Are we humans now in possession of the highest level of meaningful consciousness anywhere? Maybe not by a long shot. Mm